Good morning. Well, this is a, a good day, and not just because of what the afternoon holds. This is the day that the Lord has made. We should rejoice and be glad in it. We're in lesson three of the series, Can We Serve Church Cafeteria Style? And uh, I'm going to be talking this morning about the relationship between the church and the nation Israel. It does help to know when somebody's made a change. When, uh, when our kids were young, when we would uh, travel on Spring Valley, it would cross over Coit Road and and there was a little bit of a rise, and so I confess, I would speed up a little bit, and we'd do a little roller coaster routine, and the girls would squeal, and it was great fun. Then we went on vacation, and when we came back from vacation, nobody had bothered to tell me that they had been working on the road. They had dropped the road about two feet on the other side. The girls not only squealed, I think I probably did too, as the car went airborne over this, uh, over this rise. And so it would have been helpful to know there was a change. There uh, was a time when I was uh, responsible for somebody's health care, and uh, I was purposely not told that the will had been changed, and I was operating under, under the authority of an old will. And I have to tell you, it was rather disconcerting to me when I discovered <laughs> that I had been operating in sort of another dispensation. It would have helped to know there had been a change. And so the question is, has there been a change with respect to the church and how it is to function when laid against the backdrop of the Old Testament and the way in which Israel worshipped her God? In terms of looking where we've been, uh, you remember the two lessons I talked kind of negatively in the first lesson about the consequences of of failing to observe God's uh, order And then we talked more positively in the second lesson last week about why it's important to God. Let me see if I can summarize it in a little different way. Why is a study of the church and how it functions important? And the first answer would be because church is important to God. Church is important to God. That was really what we talked about last week. And the backside of that is, lesson one, when we do it wrong, there may be serious consequences, as when the Corinthians observed church and the Lord's Supper in a way that that was uh, irreverent. There were people who were asleep and some died. It's serious business. Here's another one that I sort of touched on last week, but I'll say it in a different way. It seems to me that it's clear in the scriptures that the most important things that are to be done by God's people, the work of God, is to be done through the church. If that is correct, and I am certain in my mind that it is, if the church is responsible primarily for the Great Commission, if the church is responsible primarily for evangelism and discipleship and... and. Uh, and baptism, and uh, the exercise of church discipline. If we get church wrong, then everything we do is messed up because it is to operate through the church. So it's vitally important that we understand the fundamentals and then work outward from those, I think, to the other matters that we are responsible for. Where we're headed, point C. What I want to do is is two things that I think are very, very critical. 
This week, I want to talk about the, the church in relationship to the past. In other words, the church in relationship to the nation Israel. What are the points of similarity and what in particular are the points of contrast? In other words, are we to do church the way Israel worshipped? Now, that's very, very fundamental because, frankly, a number of churches will point to the Old Testament as the pattern for what they're doing or will think that that is what they're doing. Uh, That's a serious question. The other one is this. What is the relationship between the church today, 2,000 years roughly after Jesus, what is the relationship of the church today to the New Testament church, that is the church we read about in the New Testament? What's happened over 20 centuries? What's happened in 2,000 years? And, and I, I think I say up there, are there barnacles on the bottom of our boat? Uh, and, and here's what, I, what I'm saying. When I understand that in the shipping industry, that when they have these large ships and they travel around the world, that there may be uh, organisms and all kinds of things that literally attach themselves to a ship and, and you now carry them from port to port. But the question is, are there things on the, on the bottom of the church's ship, which it has picked up over 20 centuries, that are really not biblical and are really not healthy, but they're still floating along with the church? And we need to stop and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. (laughs) Let's think about this. That's why I'm going to talk, uh, it won't be next week, but in the next lesson about the church. And there are three significant periods in the history of the church that were shaping to the way the church thinks and goes about what it does. And in many instances, uh, wrongly so. So we'll talk about that, uh, and then we'll move to what I would call the pillars of the church, and that is, what are those things about the church that just cannot change? Mark Driscoll did a a message on postmodernism at a Piper conference, and uh, and his topic was, I think, the nine non-negotiables of 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 Christianity that cannot be dialogued about. They are just givens that we must accept. You can talk and you can dialogue about some things, but these are non-negotiable. What are the non-negotiables with respect to the church? What are the things that at least we believe are essential that we dare not change and that we must seek to implement somehow in the practice of the church? And then there will be a number of lessons, I have to confess. I haven't got them all figured out in terms of the exact number, but we'll talk about those uh, in the the weeks to come. Now, I want to to focus right now on 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 the Old Testament snapshots that we see of Israel's worship and compare those, lay those alongside of what we find in the New Testament to say, Uh, Are we to do it like they did it? Are we to imitate them? Are we to seek to import some of the things that that they did in the Old Testament? Or are we to do things differently? And so I'd like to to take some snapshots, and I'd like to begin in the Garden of Eden. It seems to me that that's that's the ideal. That's where it began. That's where we fall from uh, in terms of the human race. And in terms of the book of Revelation, it is that, in some sense, to which we return. It is paradise regained in the book of Revelation. And so what is it that we had that we lost? And it seems to me you can see from Genesis chapter 3, 
in sort of the downside, when, when Adam and Eve hear the sound of the Lord walking in the garden and they hide themselves, it seems to me that we can say that in the garden there was an intimacy and there was a fellowship and there was a communion with God that took place that was as good as it gets. But when the fall came, that intimacy was interrupted. Men hid themselves, and then at the end uh, of, of uh, chapter 3, we discover that God actually bars them from the garden, from the tree of life, and, and remember, stations these celestial beings to keep them from, from entering back into that. So men lost their fellowship with God. There was a breakdown in the intimacy and the communion that men had with God. And when you look at chapter 4 and the relationship with Cain and Abel, you discover that not only was the relationship between men and God impaired, but the relationship between men. Cain uh, Cain kills Abel. And Lamech, at the end of chapter 4, he basically says, you think he was bad? I'm worse. And so you've got this, this meanness that's already built in. So men are at each other's throats, and therefore it's only a, a, a couple of chapters, and here we are, that things are so bad, God has to wipe civilization off the face of the earth. That's what we lost. So where do we pick up the story? Well, let's pick up the story at, at Mount Sinai. And look, uh, for instance, at what we see in Exodus chapter 19. I'm not going to read all those texts. I wish we had time to go through each one, but there's a number of them. But remember in Exodus chapter 19, God is positioning the nascent Israel at the base of Mount Sinai. You've got the smoke and the fire that's coming down, and Moses will go up on the mountain. But you remember that in chapter 19, God sends Moses back down and says, Put up the yellow police tape, so to speak, and and tell the people and their cattle and all of that, don't come close or they'll die. So it's it's keep your distance kind of of religion. And, And then if you think that it's only from the Godward side, then you need to look at chapter 20 and verses 18 through 21. And that's where Israel says, look, Moses, you go talk to God. We, we, don't, we don't really want to do that. You go up and you tell us what he said. You be the mediator. We like it. We want that distance. You be the, the, the goal between man, not us. Now, what's interesting is when you come to Deuteronomy chapter 5 and you see a recollection of that, here's what God says. God says, the people said to, 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 uh, to, Moses says, the people said to me, you go and we'll stay back. We'll stay away. And God said, that was a good idea. That was a good idea for you guys to stay away from me. And, and knowing what we know later about Israel's history, you'd say it was a really good idea not to get close. But then he says this, oh, that my people had a heart to obey. And so what I would suggest to you is the reason why the distance was necessary was because of the hardness of Israel's hearts and the predisposition to sin, which would offend God's holiness and would bring about, the, the, as it were, the death penalty. So there is a worship of God, but it is a worship at a distance. By the way, I should have said back in Genesis chapter 4, the last verse, remember it says, then, talking about the birth of Seth, then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And, and I think there are a lot of people who are saying this. Boy, I wonder what they did. Maybe God didn't tell us 
because we'd have tried to imitate them if, if we knew. We don't know, but we do know that God now initiated somehow and men began to enter into that worship. Now we see it in the book of Exodus. But I want to take you to that, that story in uh, Genesis chapter uh, 24, verses 7 through 11. In your notes, if you have them, uh, I, pardon me, I had 9 through 11 and then I decided to go back to verse 7 as you see on the screen. It says this, Moses took the book of the covenant and he read it aloud to the people and they said, we are willing to do and obey all that the Lord has spoken. So Moses took the blood and splashed it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet there was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear like the sky itself. But he did not lay a hand on the leaders of the Israelites, so they saw God and they ate and drank. Isn't that a strange text? I mean, to me, it is, it is just bizarre almost. But I want you to notice a couple of things about it. It's typical in the sense that they have just made a covenant with God and now they are partaking of a covenant meal. They are doing so in a way that men could not normally have done without dying. They are, they are that close to the presence of God. Now, make a couple more observations. However, those people, those representatives of the elders and, and of Aaron and his sons did not go up and accompany Moses on the top of the mountain. Only Moses had that, shall we call it, ultimate intimacy with God. And so they are kept back. And, and I would say this. This, I believe, is typical of what you see in the Old Testament. And that is, it is representative intimacy with God. So you got the whole mob of people down there, and we know what they're about to do in, in chapter 32. They're about to make a golden calf. I don't know whether they're doing it yet. But, but they're, they're off and doing their own thing. So that it was only this small representative group that entered into that intimacy with God. And in a sense, everybody else is a bystander. I would say to you, that's not the ultimate. That is not the ideal in worship. But it is the way it was. And by the way, it doesn't change. As you look at the uh, next uh, uh, frame... You'll see Israel at Mount Sinai now related to the golden calf. I almost couldn't stay seated this morning at the Lord's Supper because this is such an exciting text. And, and what I'm going to say and what Paul was trying to, to direct us to do and other men is just very much intertwined. But watch this text. You have the Israelites persuading Aaron, by the way, Aaron the high priest... We're going to say in the New Testament, we have a better high priest. I sure hope so. That boy was a loser. And he's the guy who's doing the golden calf. But anyway, here's our great high priest at, at that moment in time. And, and Israel worshiping the golden calf. And God now is, is angered and is going to act. And there are two primary issues as I see it. Issue number one. Will the Israelites even live to regret the day? Are they going to survive that day? God says to Moses, I'm going to wipe the slate clean. I'm going to get rid of these people. And I'm going to make a whole new nation out of you. And Moses appeals to God and he said, God, you know, these, 
this is a pretty motley crew, I'll admit. But it isn't really about them, it's about you. You made a promise that you would bring this motley crew into the land, and because of your character, you really need to fulfill what you did. It's really about your glory that, that this whole thing hinges around. And so you remember that God then changed his mind in the sense of uh, relented, but obviously what he was intending to do all along. But Moses now is at least on board with the plan. The second thing is this. Will God go with Israel? It's one thing to say they'll live. By the way, remember the Levites got their swords out and killed 3,000, and God brought a plague and killed a bunch more? So it, it was a message to the Israelites, you better take this pretty seriously. But the question now is, where do we go from here? And more so to the point, will God go with us? So Moses begins to, to, to work on that, and I want you to notice now how that plays itself out in, in Exodus. I love this. And, and something all of a sudden came clear in my mind that I've been wrestling with for, I, I can't really tell you how long, but look at uh, Exodus chapter 33. And, and, and he is petitioning God to go with him. By the way, look at verses 7 through 11. This is where Moses pitches the tent outside the camp. In a sense, God has to be separate from these stiff-necked Israelites or he'd kill him. So Moses pitches the tent outside the camp. He goes out there. He communes with God. And it says that when he went out and the cloud descended and so on, it said all of the people would stand and worship. Verse 10. The people would, 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 uh, would just honor Moses. But, but my point is this. Once again, it is one man worshiping for the nation. Now, there's a sense in which they are, they are reverencing Moses, but they are not going in that tent. Only Moses goes in that tent. He is, again, their representative. Moses now appeals to God, and he says in verses 12 and following, look, you've told me bring this people up, and, and uh, you yourself are going to let me know who you will send with me. Now I pray, he says, if I have found favor in your sight... Let me know my, your ways, that I may know you, and that I may find favor in your sight. And look what God says. I will, my presence will go with you, singular, singular. I'm with you, Moses. I am not with them. So the question is, is not will God go with Moses. The question is, will God go with the Israelites? And Moses is going to contend with God that there is really no way this thing is going to work unless God is present with his people. That is the way that it ought to be. And so he begins to make his petition. Now, when you come to verse 17, God says, all right, I'm going to go with you. Uh, and, and, and so on. And then Moses says, let me see your glory. And, and if you'll notice, that, that always bothered me. It was like there was some kind of an interruption here. The issue, will God go with Israel? Let me see your glory now. From verse 17 of chapter 33 down to uh, verse 8 of chapter 34 is all about God manifesting his glory to Moses. And then we go back to the, will it be us? Question. What's going on here? 
I think that it's clear in the text that Moses is a type, a prototype of our Lord Jesus as the great mediator. I believe it is only because of the intercession, from a human perspective, it is only because of the intercession of Moses that the Israelites are spared. It is through the intercession of Moses that God goes with them, not just with him. And so it seems to me that Moses is doing is saying this. Show me, singular, show me your favor. When God graces him with a revelation of who he is, and incidentally, the revelation is that God is merciful and compassionate, then Moses says this, and this is the word that caught my attention in verse 9. He said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, let the Lord go along in our midst. Go with us. So what's the now about? I think that Israel's future rested on Moses' shoulders, just as much more will be the case in the New Testament when everything rests on Jesus. What Moses is saying is, if you favor me, as you have just done, then do this for my sake. Do this for my sake. Not for them. Do that for me. And God says, I will. So to me, what I'm seeing in this whole encounter is Moses is the one who has the intimacy with God. It is his standing with God, which is so important to the Israelites. And the Israelites are involved, but they're involved, as it were, in a sort of stand off and observe uh, posture. Now, let's go to the, uh, to the temple. I call this as good as it gets. Okay, we've talked about Israel and chapters 32 through 34 are probably not as good as it gets. <laughs> it's probably as bad as it gets. And by the way, ten times, Numbers says, ten times, God says there in Numbers, this is what we've been through. Israel does the same thing, not exactly the same thing, but rebels against him and Moses has to plead with God to spare this stiff-necked people. Ten times. Uh, God deals with them. Notice, by the way, everything hangs on Moses' shoulders. I, I put it in, your, in the last frame. That was the objection. Remember Aaron and Miriam said, wait a minute, what's so special with this guy? How come he gets to be the representative? God says, listen up, y'all, listen up. Miriam's going to get this leprosy. She's listening. Moses And Aaron, he's, he's listening pretty carefully too. God says, I speak to other people indirectly. I speak to Moses face to face. He is the man. He is the man. And you'd better watch the way you talk about him. But as great as he was, this generation of Israelites doesn't make it into the land. Is that not right? They don't make it. And neither does Moses. All I'm trying to say then is, as great a man as Moses was, we need a better mediator than that. We need somebody better than Moses. Like Moses, as uh, Deuteronomy chapter 18 says, like Moses, but better than Moses. Now, here's as good as it gets at the temple. 1 Kings chapter 8, you remember that, uh, that Solomon is dedicating the temple. And, and you see, this is the place for prayer. And it is the place toward which men must turn if they are not there in Jerusalem. It is the place toward which they will turn and pray, as they did, for instance, as Daniel did when he was in Babylon. It is the place that is, that is devoted to prayer. 
And it is the place where the glory of God visibly comes down and rests in association with the, the, the Holy of Holies and, and whatever there in, in conjunction with the temple. That's as good as it gets. But it's not good enough. Look at There are barriers. I mean, the average Israelite didn't go into the Holy of Holies. Only Aaron went in there once a year and he was shaking in his boots, or the high priest. It was it was a set-apart place. There was a veil. There were all of these barricades. And that's what we saw when Uzzah reached out and touched the ark. That separation was not observed, and, and trouble came about. Barriers. Don't think everybody lived in Jerusalem, folks. People were farmers and, and, and shepherds, and they lived all around. The males came for the feast three times a year. So it isn't as though the temple is always in your presence, or should I say, you are always in the presence of the temple. You're not. That's why Solomon prays that you would turn toward the temple and pray toward it. You're not even there because it's in a certain place and only a certain number of people are there around it. God's glory is going to depart from the temple. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. God's people of Judah and Jerusalem are going to be taken into Babylon and they're going to be a long ways away. And Psalm 137 says... We were there and the people said, sing us one of those songs. And they're saying, how can we sing a song when we're not there in Jerusalem with all this stuff? The point is, it was great, but it wasn't best. It wasn't best, as good as it was. So there were the promise of better things, promise of a better covenant, Jeremiah chapter 31, Ezekiel chapter 36. A better covenant is coming than the old covenant. A covenant in which God is going to touch the hearts of men and turn them from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, to where he writes his word upon men's hearts and not upon stone. It's going to be a better king, Second Samuel chapter 7, an eternal king that will come from David, the seed of David. A better shepherd, not like the crummy shepherds that ruled over. Jeremiah talks about these wicked shepherds that were fleecing the sheep. There's a better shepherd that's going to come. Isaiah talks about this one, and God himself will come and shepherd his people. Better shepherd. Better temple. And so he says to the people who are mourning over this kind of uh, second-class temple that's been rebuilt, when the people return from the exile, he says, don't worry, <laughs> something better than this is coming. This is not the end of all. And there's going to be something better than the ark. You won't even remember the ark when you see what that is. So all of these are yearnings from the people of the Old Testament and promises from the prophets saying better things are coming. Does that not say to you that the Old Testament is not best? Something better is coming. And of course, that comes in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we don't have time to play all of these out, but a better covenant. Luke chapter 22, Jesus says, This covenant is the new covenant in my blood, as he is observing the, uh, the bread and the wine with his disciples, and as we observe every week at communion. A better temple. Jesus actually says in John chapter 2 that he is the temple, and now in his absence, his spirit dwells within us, and we are his temple. We don't have to go three times a year. We don't have to look afar. God dwells in us, the dwelling place of God in the Spirit, Paul says in Ephesians. 
a better sacrifice. Hebrews says the sacrifices in the Old Testament, they didn't last. We've got one that's a sacrifice once for all. You don't have to keep back going back and redoing your sacrifices. Christ died once for all. A better shepherd, John chapter 10. A better mediator, the book of, of, of Hebrews, better than Moses. A better high priest, the book of Hebrews again makes much of that. A better priesthood than the priesthood of the Old Testament. Better glory, Second Corinthians chapter 3 and 4 that we were talking about this morning. Better access and better intimacy. We'll talk about that more in Hebrews from the text in Hebrews chapter 10. When Jesus came, it got instantly better. And therefore, the worship of the church is better than the worship of Israel in the Old Testament. Can I focus your attention on three texts? Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 2. And the text that was read this morning. Again, we don't have time to expound that in detail, but let me draw some things to your attention. It is interesting to me to observe that when Peter is talking about the church, he uses Old Testament language to describe it. And I'm thinking in particular now, you'll notice in your margin that there are a number of of Old Testament texts. I'm thinking in particular of that text in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 6, where God says to Moses and, and to the Israelites that these people will become to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What this text tells me is there is continuity between the Old Testament and the New. Now, continuity doesn't mean it's the same. It means it's related, okay? There's continuity between the Old and the New because Peter is describing the church in language that was first used of Israel. Now, as I understand it, Israel never reached that point. They never achieved that. And so you might say that the church is grafted in and they realize what Israel failed to do. But there is continuity. There is contrast because the new is better than the old. But there is continuity in the sense that there is something that links them. Now, I'm going to step out on the edge of the diving board and, and, and say that the relationship between Israel and the church is something that people think is really important when they think about prophecy. Dispensationalism tends to emphasize the differences between old and new. Covenant theology tends to emphasize the similarities. And and all I'm saying to you is there is continuity and there is contrast. They are both true, and we have to hold to both of those. There is something that is like, at least, what we see in some sense, but there's also something new and better and different, and we have to observe both of those as we come to these texts and as we try to go about church. Notice that in this uh, 1 Peter 2 text, another thing is very, very, very clear. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. When I was traveling a few years ago, a fellow said to me as we were flying over Asia somewhere, he said, what's Christianity all about? And and I sort of had to step back and start thinking through, well, how do I answer this? But you know what the answer is? It's all about Jesus. Christianity is about Jesus. It can just boil it down to that. It is he who comes and fulfills all of these Old Testament shadows and types. It is he who brings about the new covenant. It is he who is the one who builds his church. It's all about him. 
And you see that here. And, and it's, it's presented in a twofold way. One, he is the one who, if men reject him, he becomes the stone of stumbling. Reject Jesus, and you won't, you won't enter into any of the blessings that God has. He is the key. And, and so positively, when you accept him, you become a part of that building that is being built up, and he is the, the cornerstone on which all of it is built. It's all about Jesus. And it's about what we have been called to do. That we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into light. Why has he blessed us? Remember Ramesh was talking out of Psalm 67, and, and, and he said, we are blessed that we may be a blessing. That comes straight out of the Abrahamic covenant. God blessed Abraham so that he might become a blessing to all nations, not hoard those blessings for himself. We are blessed by God. We are put in this privileged place. We are, are made a, a holy priesthood. I'm going to say one more thing, and I'm going to come back to it. It talks about the priesthood of all believers, not each individual believer. Now, just ponder that thought, because we'll come back to it in, in a few weeks. But, but I hear sometimes people talking about the priesthood of every believer. And sometimes what that means is, my, I'm my own priest and I don't need anybody else. What I see is it's the whole church. It's a priestly nation, not just a priestly individual. See, that's the, the Old Testament picture is it all hung on Moses. In the New Testament, it's the whole church that corporately has a priestly function. And yes, we all are participants in that, but we're not autonomous priests going around doing our own stuff. We're a part of this building, part of this nation that is a priestly nation. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. He's been talking all the way through the book of Hebrews about the superiority of the new covenant to the old. Superiority of the priesthood of our Lord Jesus to that of the old. Superiority of the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus to those of the Old Testament and the old covenant. And he really kind of boils it all down and says, because of this, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Now think about that. We read elsewhere that, that, that Jesus Christ in his flesh, that it was the veil. And in a sense, when our Lord Jesus Christ was put to death, that veil, remember, was torn. And in the tearing of that veil, we now have access into that place that was once barricaded to, to, to the masses and only permissible for one once a year. Now we have access because of the better sacrifice, the better covenant, the better temple. We now as a church, we as believers can come to God boldly, not waiting for some representative to do it for us, but we may personally enter into God's presence and enjoy Him, and we should do that boldly because we have a great priest we ought to draw near. I wish I had more time, but maybe just leave it at this. Isn't that really what it's all about? When you put the Old Testament alongside of the New, the Old Testament was stay back. <laughs> stay away. Stay back. Keep your distance. New Testament is draw near. And my question to, to myself and to every one of you is, are we really doing that? Or are we drawing back? 
Are we saying to somebody, a preacher or some other leaders, you, you go talk to God. You, you, you go tell me what God has to say. That's not what the New Testament's about. It's about us entering into an intimacy. And I'm saying it, it's, not, it's not paradise lost, but it's a whole lot better than what the Old Testament saints experienced. A lot better. And we ought to enter into all of those privileges that Christ has earned for us. Thinking about the Super Bowl, not much, frankly, but thinking about the Super Bowl, and I, and I was thinking at, at, at sitting at the Lord's table this morning. One, we've never been to any of those fancy box seats in a football game, but one time we got to sit in the fancy box seats at a baseball game, and, and all I know is it's expensive. I didn't pay for it, but I know it's expensive. And you're thinking, think about what people are paying to sit in a certain place today. Think about what advertisers are paying to posture themselves in a certain place. When we come to the Lord's Supper, think about what he paid for our seat, if you want to put it in those terms. As we sit here and gather around remembering and worshiping our Lord Jesus, think of the price. Think of the price. We have 50-yard line tickets to the greatest thing that's going on, the church. And, and the writer of the Hebrews says, come on now, y'all, draw near, boldly. Gather together, and when you do, encourage one another. And that's the other thing I see missing in, in the Old Testament is, you know, when you had two million people or whatever it was out there in the desert, you, you didn't really have a lot of this. You, you had the Passover, and it was sort of a family thing. But you didn't have that kind of communion that I think we have in the new. Gather together, draw near, encourage one another, and draw upon our Lord Jesus. Last text I want to call your attention to is Luke chapter 5. And I suppose if you want to say it's not only the end, it's the bottom line. Uh, And it's about the old and the new. Remember, there was the question that was being asked. I'm thinking of verses 33 through 39. The question's being asked, well, what, what... the Pharisees of John the Baptist, they fast and whatever. How come your disciples are not doing what they did? Now, remember, John the Baptist is called the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. He's the old, if you would, and the church is the new. And they're saying, how come you're not going back? Why are your disciples not imitating the old? And Jesus, in effect, said, because what I'm doing is new. It's new. And then he says in verse 37, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. And here's what I'm saying. The church is the new wine. The church is the new wine. Don't expect that God is going to put that new wine into all the forms and structures of the Old Testament because he isn't. He isn't. He's going to put it in new wineskins. And that's why what we're talking about in this series on the church is, what are those new wineskins look like? What should we be doing that is consistent with the newness of what our Lord is doing? And look now at that last verse. It's the only one of the Gospels I know of where this is said. No one after drinking the old wine wishes for the new, for he says, the old's good enough. <laughs> I think that's one of the great threats to the church. It is, you know, I know there's that statement, oh, we've always done it that way before. The old's good enough. But I'm thinking about the much older old than that. 
And, and there are those within Judaism in Jesus' day and perhaps in our day who are saying the old is actually better. See, if you were to worship as the Israelites worshipped, it would be more authentic. It would be more spiritual. I, 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 I dare you to go to one text of Scripture in the New Testament that says you ought to go back to the old. It's saying you ought to embrace the new. And, and why I'm making such a point of this is when we talk about the church, if we don't get it straight that we are not to try and replicate, reproduce, drag in by its big toe some of that old stuff so that it somehow makes us feel better. It isn't better. It isn't better. It's the new covenant that is the foundation of the church. And what we do as a church has got to conform to that. We've got to look at the wineskins and we've got to do it in the way that honors him. I'm going to stop there and simply say, if you're here, perhaps, and you've never actually been introduced personally to Jesus, this may sound strange, but Jesus came to make all things new. Not just to come about with a new institution called the church. He came and he sacrificed his life as the sinless son of God. He sacrificed his life so that you might be a new creation in him. That all things will pass away. All things become new. That's what the gospel is about. Something radically new. I urge you, if you haven't experienced Jesus, to trust in him. Father, we thank you for this this subject. We thank you for these texts. Thank you so much for the way in which you have made it possible for us to enter into your presence and indeed for you through your spirit to dwell in us individually and to indwell us as a church. Help us to draw near with boldness. Help us to encourage one another and help us to proclaim the excellencies of the one, the Lord Jesus, who made it all possible. In his name we pray. Amen.